Welcome to episode 267 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, biohacker and author of What Win Wine. Lose weight and feel great with paleo-style meals, intermittent fasting, and wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Cynthia Thurlow, nurse practitioner and author of Intermittent Fasting Transformation, the 45-day program for women to lose stubborn weight, improve hormonal health, and slow aging. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and cynthiathurlow.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this show do not constitute medical advice or treatment, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. So, pour yourself a mug of black coffee, a cup of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi, friends. I'm about to tell you how to get three pounds of organic chicken thighs, two pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef, or one pound of premium grass-fed, grass-finished steak tips, all for free, plus $20 off. That's right, we're talking pounds of meat for free, plus $20 off. Friends, I love meat and seafood. My favorite way to get it is ButcherBox. It has been for years, and it's one of those things where I just sort of become more and more obsessed the more I use it. Especially with all the greenwashing that's going on today with meat and seafood, there's a lack of transparency, it can be hard to know what you're actually getting, and it can be expensive. ButcherBox addresses all of that. By directly partnering with farmers and fishermen, ButcherBox cuts out the middleman of the grocery store and directly delivers delicious meat and seafood straight to your door. And they have the highest standards. Their salmon, for example, is wild caught. Their beef is 100% grass fed and 100% grass finished. Their chicken is free range and organic, and it all tastes delicious. I love their chicken, love their meat, love their seafood. They have amazing scallops as well. And you can really find the collection of food that you want that works for you and your family. They have curated boxes, so you can get exactly what you want as fresh as possible because yes, meat and seafood that is immediately frozen is fresher than meat that is waiting out and never frozen. That's because it's frozen at its peak of freshness. It's funny because people kind of think it would be the opposite. Like, oh, I need never frozen meat and seafood. No, 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 no. You want frozen. You want meat and seafood that was immediately frozen and then shipped to you, which is what ButcherBox does. I eat a lot of steak at restaurants. ButcherBox's filets are divine, way better than anything I would get at a restaurant. Their other cuts are amazing as well. With their seafood, I know I can trust them that I'm actually getting what they say because yes, there is a lot of scams in the seafood industry and their chicken also tastes amazing. It's free range and organic and tastes delicious. With ButcherBox, you don't have to worry about what's for dinner and ButcherBox has an incredible offer for our audience. You can have your choice of a weeknight meal essential for free in every order for a whole year. Just go to butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast and use ifpodcast to choose either three pounds of organic chicken thighs, two pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef, or one pound of grass-fed, grass-finished premium steak tips plus $20 off. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast and use code ifpodcast to choose your free offer 
and get that $20 off. Butcherbox.com slash IFpodcast with code IFpodcast. I will put all this information in the show notes. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumer consumers from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 267 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I am here with Cynthia Thurlow. How are you today, Cynthia? I'm doing well, my friend. How are you? What's crazy and new in your life? I know you've just you're all over the place with shows and book madness and everything. Yeah, no, I think we're like our mindset, we're four weeks away from a vacation. And so it's getting two teenage boys and my husband and myself kind of mentally prepared. If anyone's listening has teenagers, but they grow so fast at this point that they have to try on a bunch of clothes because where we're going to, we're gonna need some 
nicer things for dinner. And so nothing that they had from last summer fits them, like absolutely nothing. So there's been a lot of growing pains in this past weekend, lots of, you know, boy hormones and nonsense. But I think, I think we finally got it organized and under control. And, you know, we live in a part of the country where we have four seasons. So I was, you know, transitioning closets and sheets and all of these things, lots of motherly things. And then gearing up for a busy week of everyday wellness podcasting myself. I don't think I know. How old are they? My oldest is 16 and my youngest is 14. So one is six feet tall and the other one is five, five. And so they're wonderful, but we have moments, you know, hormonal moments with boys, even though they kind of like keep to themselves. I always say like, it's almost like living with a college student because they stay up really late they sleep in and I let them sleep in because, you know, we're kind of coming off of spring sports. We haven't yet started summer sports. And, you know, from my perspective, as long as they get good grades and they've got a nice group of friends, I'm pretty tolerant. But yeah, it's it's kind of like they come out of their rooms to eat and shower and then they go back. They're kind of like moles. I just think it's very different than when I grew up. My mother would not have been tolerant of that, but I just think, you know, it's coming off the past years of a pandemic, the fact that they had an entire school year where they were physically in school and got to participate in sports and got to spend time with friends. But I'm like, you know, them sleeping in on the weekend is really not a big deal. Although they do stay up later than my husband and I. Like it's a known fact. Like they're probably up till two on the weekend and then they sleep until noon. I'm researching sleep a lot and adolescence and even like in your teens and stuff, you really do need more sleep. And whenever I read that, I get jealous of my former self because I still sleep in. And I'm like, so back then it was scientifically normal. And my mom as well always let me sleep in, which I'm very grateful for. They really do need the sleep. I mean, if you understand physiologically what's happening with their bodies, that to me, there's no value in waking them up at 7am and having them be like really grumpy and disagreeable. I'm like, I'd rather they sleep in much to the same point. Like one of the blessings of the past two years is that I was much less regimented about getting up really early to go to the gym. And now most days I wake up without an alarm clock and I, my body naturally on its own will wake up somewhere between six and seven and I'll go to bed between nine thirty and 10. But I, I think it's important for all of us to lean into our biologic needs as it pertains to honoring our own unique proner biology. I know that I tend to get up early and you tend to stay up late. And, you know, even as adults, I think each one of us has our own kind of innate, I don't want to say peculiarities, but things that make us unique. I think I would never have survived working in medicine if I was not someone that could get up early because we had to be rounding really early in the morning, like obscenely early. So that's something that will carry on. Jen as well was, or is <laughs> a lion, an early bird as well. So we balance that dynamic. It's funny though. So I still, so I sleep in, I stay up really late. I work late. I sleep in. I still feel guilty about it every single morning. I should probably work on that because I don't think I need to be feeling guilty, but I do. Yeah, no, you shouldn't. Well, because I think as a culture, we kind of praise people. It's out of line with society. Yeah. It's it's like we praise people. But now, I mean, if the past years have taught us nothing we have way more flexibility than we ever thought were possible. And if you have the ability to work from home, find the schedule that works for you. Like I can tell you quite honestly, I would much rather work really hard while my kids are generally in school. And then, you know, late afternoon when carpool starts, I can kind of jump into that and then I can 
you know, kind of relax into my evening as opposed to, you know, years ago, I would fight myself to stay up really late and work. And, you know, there's this law of diminishing returns that I fervently believe in. And for me, especially even when I was writing my book, I was like, I'm much better in the morning, much better in the early afternoon. And then as the day goes on, I get a little, a little less patient and a little, I don't, it's not that I can't, you know, do podcast recordings because I'm sure both of us have had to be flexible with people that live overseas or have, you know, varying types of different work schedules. But as a rule, I, I've just come to find out like I'm at my best earlier in the day. Yep. And I'm at my best at night. <laughs> and so we record in the afternoon when we're kind of bridging both. Yeah. <laughs> Works well. My mom, though, has been, she's been very supportive of my sleep schedule. Like you, she let me sleep in. And every time I come to her and lament my staying up late and sleeping in late, she's like, Melanie, that's just the way you are. Like, don't try to, don't try to change it. Cause she's a night owl too. And her mom and her dad are. That's really interesting. My mom was like one of those people who worked, like she's always had a very demanding job. And before she retired as a CIO of a huge medical system, like I think she was probably getting by on three or four hours of sleep a night. And now that she's retired, it is so nice to see her actually sleeping in. Like there was a Sunday morning, I think I called her at nine and she was like, oh, we hadn't gotten up yet. And I was like, I'm glad to know you're becoming a normal human and like listening to what your body needs. And she even acknowledges now that all those years where she didn't get enough sleep and it impacted so many things, including her metabolic health, that she wishes she had listened more to what her body was trying to tell her. Have you interviewed Matthew Walker? I have not. I really want to interview him. He's like the sleep guy. What's his book called? I'm not familiar with his work, but yeah, I think all the chronobiology and all the you know research that's emerging about circadian biology to me is really fascinating. And the more I understand and the more I can share with people, it just explains so much about, you know, melatonin clocks and digestion and, you know, why we shouldn't eat two to three hours before bedtime and how that impacts insulin sensitivity. And all of a sudden, like all these things make sense. I don't know about you, but if I eat too late into the evening, I mean, my aura ring's just squawking at me the next day. Like your, you know, your heart rate was up. It was elevated overnight. I'm like, how does it know? I didn't even eat that much. It's funny. So I eat very late and right up until bed (laughs) and my aura ring. So it's interesting. I've hit a glass ceiling, I think, in that like, it'll say that I slept really great and it will give me a good readiness score. Actually, when I interviewed Harpreet, who was the CEO at the time of Aura, he's not anymore. I don't know where. I know. I know. Because I was trying to get him on the podcast and then they politely told me he was gone. Yeah. I saw that on Instagram. It says like former CEO. I was like, oh, but so basically I could have a perfect sleep. But because I go to bed so late, even though the aura ring knows I go to bed late and it recommends that I go to bed at like 2 a.m., it's not going to give me like over a certain score because one of the factors is like if you went to bed early. So I think that hinders my score. But it's interesting. It will say, did you eat too close to bed? But I still get a really good score. But I also think there's like an age-related variable. Like I think Peter Atia was talking about, like as an example, like HRV, if you plot it, you know, someone at 30 is going to get a different HRV than someone like say my age. So I'm 50. If listeners don't know that I'm 50. And so, you know, he was talking about like an HRV predicted, you know, average for a 30 year old might be very different than someone at 50. And so I have patients that are always fixated on their HRV information 
our variability. And I have to kind of point them to his to his article. And I'm like, maybe you need to take a look at this because there is some age-related variance. And just like my bone mass and my muscle mass isn't going to be the same as it was at my, at my in my 30s. And that's okay. I think HRV is another one of those metrics that can be impacted by age, just, you know, based on chronologic age, not that I'm not a good example of a healthy 50-year-old. It's just there's some variances that you get that are unique to the aging process. Yeah, I actually, I finally bit the bullet and subscribed to his subscriber feed. So I'm working my way backwards through all of his Q&A episodes. Oh, they're so good. So I just listened to the the HRV one. It took me a while to bite the bullet, but totally worth it. It was totally worth it. Like I was actually telling my husband's obsessed with Peter Atia and now listens to his podcast and Huberman. And he's an engineer. So to him, like the de- level of detail he really appreciates, even though he's not someone that's an academic and he's, you know, works for, you know, a German based company. And I was trying to convince him to get the insider with Peter Atia. And he was like, well, you can just tell me what I need to know. And I was like, buddy, I take notes. When I listen to Peter, I have like a notepad out. Same thing with Huberman. I just take notes because I'm learning so much. And I think that's one of the really amazing attributes of podcasting is that you have the ability to impact so many people unknowingly. Like it's a wonderful resource and it's a wonderful way to learn. If I get to interview him, I will be, I told you how I finally connected with his people, right? So if I get to, I will just be, I will be so nervous. I don't even know. Oh my goodness. I think that would be a really cool thing. So for listeners, we have gathered some feedback, which I was posting in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, about Cynthia being on board, which is just so exciting. I'm already just so enjoying this. But it was interesting because people were putting comments of what they were looking forward to. Oh, which if you haven't heard the announcement, if you would like to get the missing secret episode number one of this show, which was lost for a long time. And I did get a question about this. Somebody emailed and said, I thought you said this was lost. How do you now have it? (laughs) It was lost. So when Jen was working on making the transition, she was cleaning up her emails and everything, and she found it in our old emails to each other. So that's how it randomly popped out of the um, universe. If you would like to hear the missing episode number one, we will send it to you. Just write a new or update your old iTunes review for this show and include in the review what you are excited to experience or learn about with Cynthia specifically and email that to questions at ifpodcast.com and we will send you that first episode. So all of that to say, one of the feedbacks that we have been getting is that people are really excited, especially, so Cynthia is a nurse practitioner and has a clinical background. And so people I think are really excited for us to dive a little bit more into more clinical stuff and studies and and things like that. So we thought for today's episode, which is still listener Q&A, but we would start things off by, it was actually perfect timing. A study came out, which a lot of you might be familiar with because it hit all the headlines. So the study itself is called Calorie Restriction with or Without Time-Restricted Eating and Weight Loss. It was published on April 21st, 2022 in the New England Journal of Medicine. We will put a link to it in the show notes. And again, these show notes will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 267. But in any case, 
What is so special about this study is that it took over the news. The headlines were things like, quote, time-restricted eating, no better than counting calories, study finds. That was on CNN. New York Times said scientists find no benefits to time-restricted eating. So it definitely created a lot of controversy. So we thought we would actually take a moment and look at this study. What is it showing? What is it finding? Are these headlines correct and what they are portraying? Do you want to start, Cynthia? Anything to say about the study? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So the media likes to be to be sensational and sensationalize information. And so I, as soon as it came out, I went and pulled the study and looked at it, read through it. And most of my, you know, clinical peers kind of felt very similarly that, you know, when you're looking at research, and I'm not sure if you've talked about this on the podcast before, when you're looking at research, you want to look at you know, how many people were enrolled, you know, were they healthy, you know, was there a breakdown? And so one of the things that stood out almost automatically was that I think the BMI range, like as an example, so body mass index, which isn't per se necessarily particularly accurate, especially if you're muscular, but the body mass index was between 28 and 40. And for context purposes, like a BMI of 30 and above is obese. And then 40 and above is considered to be morbidly obese, you know, for most metrics that are used. And so it stood out to me initially, like they're saying that no one is diabetic, but yet clearly this is not the healthiest population of people to start with. So that was the first thing that stood out. Another thing that stood out for me was that in terms of, you know, looking at the population, there was no accountability for like physical activity. They weren't observing people eating, and they had some degree, I forget how they, the, the terminology they use, but there was some type of processed food products that they were expected to consume. So we don't really know per se, and this is why nutritional science is so confounding is that it's actually very hard to track what every single thing people put into their mouths unless they're in a controlled environment. So those were like the first two things that stood out to me. How about you, Melanie, when you were looking at the research, what stood out for you? Yeah, so I actually have it pulled up right here so I can comment on what they were eating. So they were following for men, it was a 1,500 to 1,800 calorie per day diet. And women, it was a 1,200 to 1,500 calorie per day. And then that processed food you were talking about was they were provided one protein shake per day for the first six months to help improve adherence, which speaks to what you just said, that it's it's difficult when it's an outpatient study where it's not controlled, you know, where they're not in a metabolic ward receiving all of their food. It's difficult to actually have people to know exactly what they're eating and if they're adhering. That was one of the, the big things that stood out because the study is talking about the benefits of intermittent fasting versus calorie restriction it's actually shocking to me that they did not poll the participants on their ease of use. Like they didn't ask them at all about their psychological experience of it. Cause oftentimes they'll ask that in studies. I forget the terminology they use, but it'll be like, you know, like, was it difficult or not? And they didn't ask them that at all. So we have no idea if the people who were doing the calorie restriction versus the fasting and calorie restriction, if one of those was an easier protocol to follow or not, which would have major implications for how this actually would apply to real life. Hi friends, I'm about to tell you how to get 15% off my favorite blue light blocking glasses ever. So I am often asked what are my favorite quote biohacking products and something I truly honestly cannot imagine my life without are blue light blocking glasses. 
So in today's modern environment, we are massively overexposed to blue light. It's a stimulating type of light, which can lead to stress, anxiety, headaches, and in particular, sleep issues. Blue light actually stops our bodies from producing melatonin, which is our sleep hormone. So our exposure to blue light can completely disrupt our circadian rhythm, make it hard to fall asleep, make it hard to stay asleep, and so much more. Friends, I identify as an insomniac. I would not be able to sleep without my blue light blocking glasses. I also stay up late working and wearing blue light blocking glasses at night has made it so I can do that and still fall asleep. My absolute favorite blue light blocking glasses on the market are Bond Charge, formerly known as Blue Blocks. Bond Charge makes an array of blue light blocking glasses in all different designs so you can truly find something that fits your style and reap all of the benefits of blue light blocking. They have their clear computer glasses. You can wear those during the day, especially if you're looking at screens all day to help with anxiety, headaches, and stress. They have their light sensitivity glasses. Those are tinged with a special yellow color, scientifically proven to boost mood, and they block even more blue light. Those are great for the day or evening. And then they have their blue light blocking glasses for sleep. Those are the ones that I put on at night while working before bed. Oh my goodness, friends. It's something you truly have to experience. You put on these glasses and it's like you just tell your brain, okay, it's time to go to sleep soon. They also have amazing blackout sleep masks. Those block 100% of light with zero eye pressure. I wear this every single night and I don't know how I would sleep without it. And you can get 15% off site-wide. Just go to bondcharge.com and use the coupon code IFPODCAST to save 15%. That's B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E.com with the coupon code IFPODCAST to save 15%. All right, now back to the show. You know, and it's interesting not to interrupt you, but it, but one of the other things that something you said reminded me of, of this one issue when you were looking at the macro breakdown, so the breakdown of protein, fat and carbs, I was like, you already have a potentially metabolically unhealthy group and it was very heavy on carbohydrates. And so I'm not anti-carb. Let me be really clear. I don't think that everyone has to be low carb or ketogenic. But if you already have a population of people that are being enrolled in a study that we know are probably insulin resistant or at least are diabetic, even though they screen for diabetes, but there's no way someone with a BMI of 40 is not insulin resistant. It's really interesting to me that instead of pushing like the protein lever, it was still a very carbohydrate focused diet. You know, with the macro breakdown to me was not the macro breakdown I suggest for people when they're trying to lose weight. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. I wonder the screening, because they did screen for diabetes. I wonder if they were screening for type one and type, they're probably screening for both, but they didn't screen at all for prediabetes. Yeah. And the, you know, kind of conventional Western medicine or allopathic model is still really looking at fasting glucose and A1C, which is a 90 day snapshot of blood sugar control. And, And the thing that I like to always introduce, well, your fasting blood sugar can be okay. And your A1C can still be okay. But if your fasting insulin is dysregulated, and that's oftentimes the very first biomarker that will dysregulate, they're very likely not even looking at that. I can't tell you how many people, like I talk to them and, and you know, they'll share their labs and I'm like, where's the fasting insulin? And then they get a fasting insulin back. And instead of being between two and five, which is where it ideally should be, it's 20. And I'm like, okay, well, this explains why you're weight loss resistant. So I, I don't think that they provided information about how they were screening. So I agree with you that that could have also very likely been 
a way that they have, may have missed people who would not have been metabolically flexible enough to be able to participate in a meaningful way. Not to mention the fact that oftentimes insulin resistance can also be connected with leptin resistance. And I'm sure our listeners are really savvy about, you know, leptin being this other hormone. So I just start to think about all of the little nuances, like as a clinician that I didn't see were even addressed or mentioned in that study. And I think the other piece is like New England Journal of Medicine is a preeminent stu- is a preeminent journal. And so even really good journals can have research in them that cause us all to scratch our heads and kind of say, okay, well, that was helpful. We have to do more research to look at these variables and we have to be even more conscientious about who we're enrolling in these studies and what's really going on for them outside of this laboratory environment. So something you said sparked a very tiny little baby rabbit hole for me, Tangent. Actually, the episode I was listening to last night, the Peter Atia Q&A episode, I was listening to the one on continuous glucose monitors, and he was talking about would we ever have a continuous insulin monitor and the potential with that or the, the issues with that. He answered the question of what did he think was the first biomarker that would be off that would indicate you know, pre-diabetes or headed that route. Do you want to guess what it was? Probably not going to be like uric acid or something like that. It's in the realm of what you were talking about. So did he think it was insulin? Yes, but what type when? Probably postprandial. Yeah. Yeah. So basically after eating the insulin, that would be the first thing, but that's something that we're not really ever testing. So that's why he was saying one of the benefits of having a continuous insulin monitor would pick up on that. But so in any case, back to the study, I guess we can talk about what it actually found. This was probably the first thing that stood out to me, the biggest thing, which was if you had come to me and said, we're going to do a study where we will compare people on calorie restriction and then people on calorie restriction with fasting, what do you think we'll find? Honestly, I think I would say what this study found is pretty much exactly what I would have anticipated finding, which is I would anticipate that they both lose weight. And I would anticipate, or I would guess that the fasting people would lose a little bit more weight, but I wouldn't think that it would be a massive amount more because both are calorie restricted. I would expect that all other biomarkers would probably improve a little bit more in the fasting group, which is exactly what this study found, despite the lack of quote statistical significance, which is something I can comment on in a little bit of detail. So And this is something, we'll put a link in the show notes. Jason Fung did a nice write-up on this in his Substack, So we can put a link to that. And he talks about this in that write-up. But basically, for people who aren't familiar, when you have a study, significance means statistical significance. It doesn't mean, because if people hear significance, they might think it means like, oh, that was like a really good effect. But it just means that it's showing statistically that this is happening. But what I think a lot of people don't realize is it's not like you do the study and then you look at the data and then you determine if what you found was statistically significant. It's set up from the beginning to only be statistically significant if a certain outcome happens. And so that's a subtle nuance, but it's really important. And it has to do with something called powering a study. So this study was powered to find a weight loss difference of 2.5 kilograms, which is five and a half pounds. So what that means is that If the fasted group did not lose five and a half pounds more than the other group, then the conclusion is it's not statistically significant. 
So what ended up happening was the fasting group lost about four pounds more, not 5.5. So because of that, they can conclude, nope, there's no statistical significance, which I think is doing a bit of disservice to the whole concept. And what Jason talks about in his write-up is he says that if you look at the numbers, so basically the calorie restriction group, they lost 6.3 kilograms after 12 months, which means that the fasting group, in order to be statistically significant, would have had to have a 40% increase in weight loss, numbers-wise. So as Jason points out in his overview, that's a really high bar. especially when they're already losing a significant amount of weight. And, but when I say significant, I don't mean statistically significant. (laughs) So in any case, the study was underpowered. Not that it was set up to fail, sort of was. We can put a link in the show notes. Peter Tia also has a really nice write-up where it's like a five or six part series where he talks about how to interpret and read studies. And he talks about this, about powering studies. And he talks in that about how just because something is not statistically significant doesn't mean that it's not showing something. And just because something shows something, like they don't necessarily correlate. So I have other thoughts, but I'll stop because that was a lot. No, I, I think you did an excellent job. I, I think on a lot of levels, you know, right after that study came out, I jumped on and did like a really short IG live saying, this is not going to change my perspective on fasting. I think this really speaks to the fact that the media likes to jump on one little snippet and say, you know, to propagate this misinformation that, oh, fasting isn't valuable. And I I always explain that if you looked at the groups, the fasting group always did better. It just didn't reach, as you mentioned, the statistical significance that had been set up prior to the study starting. And so I think this is a really important reason for why, even at a very basic level, each one of us need to understand how to properly interpret a study or even to be able to look at some of the big highlights that you and I have talked about so that you can examine it and say, is this really valid? Can we extrapolate from one study that fasting is invaluable or is not valuable rather? And so I think it really goes back to not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, I hate that expression, but it just seems really appropriate in this in the circumstance. And certainly you and I both have seen thousands and thousands of people that have benefited from eating less often and the other piece is, and someone asked me this, and I never dove down the rabbit hole to figure out who had sponsored the study. I know it was done in China, but I don't know who sponsored the study because sometimes when you see who's sponsoring particular research, it makes you understand why they're getting results that might be contrary to what is commonly believed to be true. Yeah, it says that it was supported by some grants, National Key Research and Development Project, Outstanding Youth Development Scheme of Nain Nanfeng Hospital, a lot of other research programs. It's just so interesting. So, like, if the study, in a way, it's sort of arbitrary. If the researchers had decided beforehand, let's set it up to look for a four-pound difference, then it would have been a completely different interpretation. Isn't that crazy? It would have been a completely different headline. Same findings, probably. To that point about the benefits extending beyond just the fasting. So basically in the fasting group, because they looked at the participants results six months out and 12 months out, and basically everything got better in the fasting group compared to the calorie restriction group. So the HOMA IR, which is huge comparing insulin and glucose, the insulin, glucose, HDL, triglycerides, 
blood pressure were all better in the fasting group. LDL was very similar in the two groups, which is interesting. I don't know why that might be. I was actually wondering if you had any theories on why the LDL is really interesting. At six months, it was down negative 5.9 in the fasting group and down negative 11.3 in the calorie restriction group. So almost double, but then it evened out at 12 months, negative 8.4 compared to negative 8.9. I wonder if it's really a marker like in that instance of inflammation and a reduction in oxidative stress because it's not uncommon. And so for listeners benefit, when we're looking at LDL, it's only one piece of a puzzle. I always like to look at advanced lipid analysis. So looking at particle size, and as an example, like you can have light and fluffy, or you can have dense and small. And so the latter, it tends to be more atherogenic. And if you're already looking at a population that to me sounds like they're not metabolically healthy, I think that weight loss is probably what's driving the lowered LDL numbers. Why the HDL, well, they didn't account for physical activity. I think that was one of the things that stood out to me because we know that HDL is, there are many things that impact HDL, obviously, but one of the things that's impacted by HDL is exercise. And so if these people were couch potatoes, I don't know what the the equivalent would be. You know, I don't know how physically active this group was. I'm assuming they weren't that could account for why there wasn't a significant change in their HDL, my first thought. I think the biggest difference, just looking through the charts, the area of abdominal subcutaneous fat was really different. So at 12 months, the calorie-restricted group lost 37 centimeters squared, and the time-restricted eating group lost 53.2. And that's significant. This was subcutaneous. The visceral was still, it was um, 21 for the calorie restriction and 26 for the fasted group. Yeah. So that differentiates the subcutaneous fat is, is an annoying fat. That's the one that most of us, when we think about fat on our bodies that we don't like, that's not as pathogenic as visceral fat. And so I think that, you know, with weight loss, you'll see changes in both, but one is certainly more significant than the other. And obviously where we carry fat is significant, like on our butt and our thighs, as women is much less significant than our abdomen area, like our truncal, they call it truncal obesity, but that area is much more significant because that's closer to our major organs and generally correlates with metabolic inflexibility and insulin resistance. Yep. That's all in my head right now because I'm prepping to interview Sarah Gottfried on Monday, who Cynthia just interviewed as well. She talks a lot about you know the role of different types of fat in the body and how it changes for women in menopause and good times. But yeah, so basically it's just, it's frustrating, honestly, because the studies showed, in my opinion, really great things about fasting and just the the takeaways and the headlines are just so not representative of what it actually found. And then on top of that, I can see the benefit of comparing fasted calorie restriction to calorie restriction. But at the same time, I think in general, the reason people love fasting is they get the benefits without the calorie restriction. I was reading one comment on the study and I actually laughed because it's not funny, but it's the type of thing I would laugh at. And it was like, somebody said, well, basically all the study showed is that calorie restriction works, which yes, <laughs> um, if it's actually controlled. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, it goes back to, there's always this debate about calories versus the carb insulin hypothesis and 
weight loss. And, you know, it's two different dogmas really fighting fervently to better understand what drives inflammation and and weight loss resistance or weight gain. And and so the, the debate is still out there. There's no question that fasting is is a valuable resource. And for a lot of people who don't want to calorie count, and I'm definitely one of them, I just enjoy knowing that I can eat within a particular window and I can modulate a lot of different factors that help me maintain a healthy weight. Exactly. And I, and I think what's interesting, and, and this is a question that has stuck with me in my show, the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. I've interviewed so many people, but every now and then I ask a guest a question and it just sticks with me asking them and it sticks with me their answer. And one of those questions was when I had James Clement on the show, he wrote a book called The Switch and we've become really good friends. But I asked him all of these different things like fasting, calorie restriction, protein restriction, are they additive or are they all activating similar pathways so they're not additive? And he said, they're not. So they basically cancel each other out. So, you know, if you're doing calorie restriction, and then calorie restriction and fasting, you're not necessarily going to see a huge additive benefit because they both work by similar mechanisms, even though fasting doesn't necessarily require calorie restriction. They activate similar pathways. So, yeah. I haven't interviewed him yet. He's lovely. Although he was just, I was just talking to him because I, <laughs> I was giving him my monologue of what I thought about the study and to see his, what his thoughts were. And he said he basically agreed. So I, I felt good, but um, he said... <laughs> good to have that validation. I know. I was like, okay, from the scientist. He runs a, a lab that studies the blood work of supercentenarians. He did this huge supercentenarian study and then he wrote the switch. And right now he's actually working with Steve Horvath, who I would die to interview. <laughs> um, and like George Church wrote the foreword to his book. It's like all the big wigs and like the genetics world. He did say last night he's not really doing podcast interviews anymore. I don't think they're his thing. A lot of those researchers, I always think like Rick Johnson, for anyone that's listening, he's this amazing fructose researcher, but he is probably one of the most gregarious, happy, extroverted researchers I've ever met in my entire life. Like I thought when I recorded with him that it was so dense in terms of content that I was like, well, I'm going to you know, be curious to see how this re- you know resonates with my listeners And they loved it. Like, they were like, oh my gosh, he makes it so clear. And so I agree with you that sometimes these research folk tend to be a little more cerebral. They're a little more introverted. They might be less comfortable, you know, doing podcast interviews, which is a shame because I think podcasting is like such an amazing way to really get a sense for what people are doing and to share ideas in a way that can inspire others to take better care. My feeling is, I listen to podcasts because I'm always looking for another way to another angle to look at to help patients, you know, take better care of themselves. But, you know, not all of us are extroverted introverts. Like some people are just true introverts. And the thought of being on a podcast probably gives them hives. I'm glad you brought Rick up. So when Jen and I were discussing transitioning her out of the show and I wasn't sure yet about Cynthia. I was like, oh no, I need to like, I need to bank up (laughs) some interviews. So I actually reached out to Rick to see if he would like to come on this show because I just think his content is so valuable and listeners of this show would really love his work because I had him on the other show. So I'm actually interviewing him for this show. I don't know when we'll air it, but I just to have it, I'm interviewing him this week. I think he's amazing. He's probably easily one of my favorite interviews I've done this year. He's just fabulous. (laughs) So 
So, so listeners get excited. I'm not sure when we'll air that, but we will have an episode on this show with him upcoming. Okay. I think we tore that study apart, I guess. <laughs> For listeners, again, the show notes will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 267. We'll put a link to that study there. If you want to read the whole study, it is in the New England Journal of Medicine. Right now, only the abstract is available, but you can sign up for a New England of Journal Medicine account and you get, I think, at the beginning, like three free studies. Use them wisely. <laughs> so um, you, can, you can grab this one if you like. Okay. Shall we jump into some listener questions? Sure. So to start things off, this is very exciting because... Cynthia and I were brainstorming about topics to talk about, and Cynthia specifically wanted to talk about creatine. And I was like, well, I got you covered because if listeners are curious, we have this massive document of all questions that have ever been submitted to the show ever, and it's hundreds and hundreds of questions. So if there's ever a topic we actually want to talk about, we don't have to make up a question. I just have to go in there and find it because I'm sure somebody has submitted one before. So we do. We have two questions about creatine that I'm going to read. And then I'm super curious to get Cynthia's thoughts on this. So the first question is from Zach and the subject is creatine. And Zach says, hi, thank you for all of the work you do on this podcast. I'm a former American football player who has had great success using intermittent fasting, one meal a day, paleo eating, and HIIT workouts to lose weight and develop an awesome, fulfilling lifestyle. When I finished playing football, I was 300 pounds with zero diet discipline. Luckily, my brother, hi John, told me about your podcast and your books. And in the 10 months since my football career ended, I've lost about 80 pounds. I'm still losing weight, but I am also at the point where I would like to work on muscle mass and tone again. In pursuit of this, I've hidden my scale, opting instead to focus on being happy with my body and not relying on what the scale tells me for my happiness. I use a one meal a day approach. And while I have tons of energy for my workouts, I am looking for something to maximize my muscle recovery given my intense workouts. In the past, I've had success taking creatine for this purpose, but that was during my football eat everything and get as huge as possible, regardless of impact on your body stage. That's my comment. (laughs) It sounds really intense. He says, I don't think that creatine has been discussed on the show yet. And if so, I apologize for the repeated question. What are your thoughts about supplementing creatine, whether it is beneficial or harmful, if beneficial, when to take it, how much to take, et cetera. Thank you so much in advance and keep up the amazing work. And then Cynthia actually got a DM question from Laura Donna or Laura Dana. And she says that she would like advice slash education on using creatine as a woman. When, how much expected reaction, brand, thanks. She says she loves Cynthia's book, which by the way is Intermittent Fasting Transformation. So creatine questions from a man and a woman. I love it. You know, it's interesting. I started working with a new trainer in 2021 and like out of her mouth, the first thing she said to me, and she's very research-based. She's a former attorney. She's just incredible. She was like, you need to use creatine. And I was like, wait a minute. I was like, I've heard so many conflicting things. So for benefits of the listeners, there are sex differences between the utilization of creatine, but in terms of like benefits, they include things like increased muscular endurance. They increase muscular power, strength, 
they can improve bone health and we know that it improves brain health and it, it can you know improve cognitive function it helps recycle ATP which i'm sure Melanie and Jen have talked about decreases the effects of sleep deprivation improves mood and memory so there's lots of benefits obviously and obviously the the first question comes from someone who played what sounds to be professional football the second question comes from a young woman who's asking and so what i always say is that there are sex related differences with creatine we know that women make 70 to 80% less amounts of endogenous creatine like in their muscle tissue. But what's interesting is we have increased higher resting concentrations of creatine. So it's like what we do have is significant in terms of, it's almost like testosterone. So women make less testosterone, but what we have in our bodies is the most bioavailable hormone. So much to the point of what we're saying with creatine, there are sex-related differences What's interesting, though, is when I looked at the research, we know that there are changes during our menstrual cycles with creatine. We actually get, when we have a a more higher estrogen state, so kind of in the follicular phase, we have increased creatine kinase, and this can impact glucose oxidation. We know that creatine supplementation in women can be really beneficial in perimenopause and menopause, can actually improve muscle, bone, and strength, and help ward off sarcopenia which is a term that is essentially muscle loss with aging. It's not a question of if, but when. It starts to accelerate after 40. For those that aren't aware, we have peak bone and muscle mass in our 20s and 30s. I, of course, didn't appreciate this until I got to be middle-aged. So it's really important. So I think, you know, even if you're looking at a review of randomized controlled studies, it definitely looks like supplementation with creatine has a lot of benefits. And if people want us to go into, you know, deeper a deeper dive into these things, there's a lot. Like there's, so, it's so interesting. So, if you look at the research, sometimes people will talk about needing a loading phase. I'm not sure per se that we all need a loading phase. What I do think is interesting, and what I generally recommend people kind of aim for is a gram a day. And the product that I use and take, which was recommended to me by my trainer, so I want to give her full credit, is a product called Concrete. It's C O N dash C R E T. And the manufacturer is Primera Sports. You can go to their website. And what I like that is important is that a lot of times people are worried about taking creatine because they think it's going to make them bloated. It's going to make them look bulky. As it pertains to when we just don't have enough circulating testosterone for that to be an issue. Obviously, I use one scoop a day in a protein shake and that works really well for me. Do I feel like it has to be timed around workouts? No, because that's oftentimes the question I get. But I do take it during my feeding window. I don't take it in a fasted state. I would imagine men could definitely start with a higher starting dose. Like this concrete product, it's 750 milligrams in a scoop. So obviously, if we're aiming for a gram a day, you probably want a little more than a scoop and a half for a woman. For a man, you might want a product that has more concentration of the product per scoop. Because for men, it was looking like maintenance phase, somewhere between two to five grams a day. Now, with that being said, I think low and slow is the way to go. You know, try it out, see how you feel. Be careful sourcing supplements on Amazon. I don't know if you've talked about this before. We talk about this so much. Yeah. Like you may actually get something legitimate on Amazon, but the statistical likelihood is pretty low. So as it pertains to creatine, you can go directly to the Concrete website. I have no affiliation with them whatsoever. But that's generally the recommendation because there's a lot of junk that's out there. You know, I'm not going to name stores that I think of when I say this, but you really want to look like my trainer at one point was an IFBB like bodybuilder. And so she now looks like a very petite, normal person. 
but this is the product she uses and recommends for her clients. And she's very research-based and very smart. And so I always like to give her props. But creatine, yes, creatine supplementation, especially for women, really important. We don't have as much circulating in our tissues, you know, in our menstrual cycles. We definitely want to be supplementing it. And if we are perimenopausal, menopausal, we want to be more apt to be utilizing creatine because it can help with muscle and bone strength. And like I mentioned, it's not an if, but when sarcopenia will happen if we don't work against it. So that's why Melanie and I always talk about this. You have to eat enough protein, you know, make sure you're doing some weight bearing exercise, getting high quality sleep, all of which can help you ward off sarcopenia. I love this. Did you listen to, how many times can we say Peter Tia on today's episode? <laughs> Did you listen? We're such fangirls. Did you listen to his interview with Lane Norton recently? I have not because I went down a rabbit hole listening to... So do you know the low-carb MD docs? I do. Who are they? I think so. So it's Dr. Tro and then Brian Lenskis. And so they're like very good friends. But Tro and BioLane, as he calls himself, have had some knockdown dragouts. But they did actually have like a very respectful conversation. I've listened to him on a few other people's podcasts. And I just, I have to like set aside the time because as anyone who knows Peter Atia or Huberman Lab or any of those, like it can sometimes be a two and a half hour conversation. So I have to like mentally be in my game to like set aside that amount of time and take notes. I haven't listened yet. That was my long explanation for I haven't listened yet, but I do intend to. Hi friends, super exciting announcement. Berberine subscriptions are here and this is your chance to get grandfathered in to a massive discount for life. Berberine is an incredible supplement that I love and which is amazing, especially for this audience. It is a plant alkaloid that has been used for thousands of years in traditional Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine, and it rivals the effect of metformin when it comes to blood sugar control. That's right, if you're looking to take charge of your blood sugar levels, berberine can be an incredible tool in your arsenal to help achieve that. I have noticed huge differences on my CGM, my continuous glucose monitor, when I take berberine. I've personally seen a 20-point drop in my postprandial blood sugar levels when I take berberine, and it's not just me. Friends have told me that. You guys in the audience have told me that. Influencers have reported that back. It truly is incredible, and it's not just blood glucose control. Berberine has so many other potential health benefits. It can help modulate inflammation, beneficially affect cholesterol levels, support the gut microbiome, and even activate the longevity pathway AMPK. That's something that we talk a lot about with fasting specifically. Berberine can actually help do that as well. It took quite a while to bring it to market because we couldn't find a berberine source that tested for all of the purity and potency that we wanted. We finally did find a source. That's the one that you get in Avalon X. It's tested multiple times for purity and potency and to be free of all common allergens as well as heavy metals and mold, which you guys know is so important to me. So if you'd like to have berberine in your daily life and help save money as well as be more sustainable for you and the planet, you need a subscription. It helps reduce packaging and shipping energy. And ultimately, we want to create it all in one large bottle like we did recently with my Serapeptase supplement. But here's the thing. We want to make sure that we give you guys the right amount of capsules perfect for you. So we are doing a special subscription launch where you guys can actually choose between two different options, two bottles every two months or two bottles every three months. 
you will get grandfathered into a 22% off discount for life as long as you keep the subscription active. So now is the time to grab the subscription. And then based on how that goes, whichever is more popular, the two bottles every two months or the two bottles every three months, that will help us decide which type of subscription to launch when we do the large bottle. So this is your chance to snag an incredible discount on Avalon X Berberine 500 and help us figure out what you guys really want in the future with the large bottle option. This is live now and ends July 17th, so snag this deal while you can. That's at avalonx.us. And to stay up to date on all of the latest specials and discounts, definitely get on my email list. That's at avalonx.us slash email list. And you can get text updates and a 20% off code when you text avalonx to 877-861-8318. Of course, you can always use the coupon code MelanieAvalon site-wide to get 10% off all of my products, as well as all of the products from my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. So again, grab that Riverine subscription, let us know what you want, get grandfathered in to an incredible discount for life and take charge of your blood sugar control. All right, now back to the show. Do you know what's funny? Speaking of sleep earlier, I listen to very specific podcasts at night, like during my routine. So the shows I listen to at night are always either Ritual, Well-Fed Women or Peter Atia. I just wonder if I were to listen to Peter Tia during the day, if I would get sleepy because I'm so conditioned to, like, it's like my wind down. I find it very comforting (laughs) to hear him talk about. (laughs) So in any case, though, that recent episode, we can put a link to it in the show notes because they did a deep dive into creatine. Lane was talking about the importance of what you just talked about of finding a good version. And they were talking a lot about like all the claims that are often put on them are just marketing. Yeah. Melanie will share the research study I shared with her via text message before we jumped on. You know, my hope is that we are going to be able to offer up some research-based opinions on a lot of topics that people are interested in learning more about. And obviously, if people are interested in learning more, I actually have a lot of notes. I took a lot of notes when I was reading a lot of research articles because there's a lot to creatine. It's really interesting. Maybe what we'll do is create like a mini creatine PDF or something in the future. Yeah, that'd be amazing. Questions for you. Should everybody be taking creatine? Well, from what it sounds like, I mean, I I didn't see any major contraindications, meaning things that people shouldn't be doing. But I think when women are in their follicular phase, that's when actually creatine is at its lowest. It's reduced in pregnancy. It's obviously lower in postmenopausal women. So Obviously, if you're pregnant, I'm not advocating you take this. Let me just put that caveat in there. You have to have a conversation with your OB or your nurse midwife. But menstruating women, yes. Postmenopausal, perimenopausal women, yes. Because what people don't understand is that muscle loss with aging also impacts our insulin sensitivity. It impacts our metabolic health. And we want to do everything we can to maintain as much lean muscle mass as we can throughout our lifetime. What's interesting is we become insulin resistant in our muscles first. This is really important for people to understand. So to me, I want to do everything I can to preserve my muscle mass and to continue to build it. I know you're going to interview Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. She's a good friend and and I've interviewed her on my podcast. We can even include that link. But she is a muscle protein synthesis expert And she talks a lot about these kinds of topics. So I always say she's rubbed off on me entirely, like it forced me to really understand muscle physiology at a different level. And so for everyone that's listening, unless you're pregnant, I'm not making any blanket statements about pregnant women, but menstruating women, men, and women in middle age, like perimenopause and menopause, 
you can benefit from this. And I think it's, it's fairly inexpensive. Like I want to say when I bought concrete, I think it was like under $25 and it's got 64 servings. So, you know, you might buy a couple of these a year, try it out and see how, how you feel like it, it does for you. But for me, because I'm at a stage where I need to continue to preserve and, and maintain and build what I have. And I'm kind of working at a hormonal disadvantage at this stage. So if you're under the age of like 40, you're at a hormonal advantage to someone who's middle-aged. So it's easier to build me and maintain muscle. But at my stage, I have to work harder at it. And I'm okay with that. I'm not complaining. Since it's an amino acid, would you consider it breaking the fast? Yeah, I would take it in. So I take it in a shake. So to me, it's it's like I consume it in a feeding window. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've seen pretty consistently in like your communities and and her new shared communities, but also in, in your own community, people are always trying to figure out like when they can take something, when they can't take it, take this with food or take this with a meal or take it in a shake. I mean, there's no taste to it. I've even put it in water. I mean, that's not my preferred way, but you don't have to take it immediately after exercise, just like you don't have to consume 30 grams of protein immediately after exercise, your body kind of keeps track over a 24 hour period of time. So don't get caught up in the before and after nonsense. Like there's so much misinformation, so much misinformation about that in particular that I just see across social media. People are like paralyzed about when to take stuff. This is definitely something worth taking in your feeding window. Yeah. That was actually something from the Lane Norton episode. He's all about eat protein, like constantly. Like all day. Have you seen him? He's pretty big. He's like a big guy. Yeah. What's interesting about the creatine, so it recently, semi-recently came on my radar, independent of all of this conversation. I'm going to interview a guy named Simon Hill. He wrote a book called The Proof is in the Plants. Do you know him? Mm -mm. He's big in the vegan world. He was on Rich Roll and they were talking about creatine because there is this study that is, I guess, hotly debated. It's called The Influence of Creatine Supplementation on the Cognitive Functioning of Vegetarians and Omnivores. And basically what it did was it looked at omnivores and vegetarians like before with no creatine supplementation and then gave them these different cognitive tests and then had an arm who took creatine to see how they performed with the creatine. And when they did that, the vegetarian arm performed way better, like way better. Whereas before they had been pretty similar in their performance on the cognition test. It's kind of complicated. And the reason it's debated is people are debate about how to interpret those findings. But the main way it's been interpreted is since the vegetarians did way better with creatine supplementation than the omnivores indicates that maybe they were deficient in creatine. And so that might be something to consider, which is that if you are, everything Cynthia was just saying, if you're not getting all of your protein or if you're on a, a vegetarian or a vegan diet, this definitely might be something that you would like to supplement with. No, I'm so glad you brought that up because that was a part of my like my little segue. And the other thing that I just want to interject that I thought was interesting is we know that Creatine has benefits on sleep because it interacts specifically with glycine and GABA. And so these are these inhibitory neurotransmitters in the brain. And so a lot of people take GABA before bed. But I will say that, you know, since I've been taking creatine, I feel like there's a whole mountain of things I take to support sleep. I'll be totally transparent. But when I've been consistently taking certain supplements, I've definitely noted an improvement in my sleep quality for sure. But there's also research to show that you know, it can be helpful for sleep support as well. Out of curiosity, what have been some of the main things that you've implemented that you've noticed 
And again, it's hard, like you just said, because there are so many factors, but what are some of the things that you've noticed the biggest effects on your sleep? In terms of supplementation or just lifestyle? Yeah, I guess anything. I would say GABA and L-theanine for me have been huge, huge. Those two in particular, and then high-dose melatonin. And obviously north of 40, we make less melatonin. So just like every other hormone, we start producing less and less of things. And so I started working with a new integrative medicine doc towards the tail end of 2021. And when he looked at my labs, the first thing he said was, oh my God, you need some melatonin. And I said, well, you know, my sleep isn't that bad. And then we started talking about the role of melatonin and how it's this master antioxidant. And so, you know, that's something I've been using with my own patients, you know, kind of high dose melatonin that has really been life-changing. Like, you know, this is not medical advice, you know, obviously have a conversation with your healthcare provider, but if you're north of 40, you're making less of it. And melatonin is more than just helping you sleep. And so I I think those three things for me, you know, the the GABA, the L-theanine, the high-dose melatonin has really made it a tremendous net impact. And I think you're going to interview John Lawrence, right? On your biohacking? I did interview him. Yeah. So I'm supposed to, like, he reschedules, I reschedule, he reschedules, but he has a product called Sandman. Have you tried it? No, it's in my refrigerator. Yeah, I think it freaks everyone out because it's per rectum, which my entire family thinks it's hilarious. I only maybe use it once a week, but wow, that stuff's pretty, it's pretty powerful. Don't be afraid of it. But I think when you're younger, there's probably less need of, of being on super high, super physiologic dosing. I look forward to connecting with him because the more I learn about chronobiology and circadian biology and melatonin, the more I feel like I'm just, I'm like, wow, it's like my my eyes are open to a whole new world. I think you and I talked about this when I interviewed you on my show, but I interviewed John, I read his book, which is I think called like Melatonin Miracle or something like that. And I was like, well, this is very, this is very convincing. I still, even despite reading his whole book, which talks a ton about there not being a feedback loop system that would, you know, hinder your natural melatonin production. I was still like not quite sold. And I had, and he sent me that, you know, his, you used a different word than I normally hear. What word did you use for it? Yeah. So per rectum, it's just, it's how you take it. So I was trying to explain to people, like you put it up your bum, that's how you take it. It's a very vascular area. So it's a good way to administer medications. Or supplements. Yeah, what's funny, so it's been in my refrigerator. And I feel like John will text me like every month or so and be like, have you tried it yet? I'm like, it's still there. No, don't don't freak out about it. But I do agree with you, Melanie. Like even when I was talking to Michael Bruce, I kind of asked him what he thought about high-dose melatonin. He wasn't a fan. And so I think it always has to be taken in the context of like for me, I'm 50 years old. My body makes less of it. I sleep better with some supplementation. I'm okay with it. But would I have taken that at 30? Probably not. Your body's still making vibrant amounts of that hormone. And so I think, you know, maybe cut it in half and use half the dose. Well, two things sort of shifted my thinking on that. One was I, three things. (laughs) One was I, when I got COVID, the doctor I was working with, who is more, he's a conventional MD, but more open-minded. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Part of his protocol was getting on melatonin for COVID So I was taking pretty high dose melatonin during that and not experiencing any perceived negative benefits of that. And then two other things happen. One, the melatonin I currently use is by Pure Encapsulations and it's the same, it's like the exact same bottle as my digestive enzymes, same size, same color, same everything. 
And I take an exuberant amount of digestive enzymes, like a ton, especially I eat pounds and pounds of protein. So I took like half a bottle, not realizing it. (laughs) What was interesting was I woke up the next day and because I didn't realize that I had taken that much melatonin. I didn't realize until the next night that I had taken half a bottle of melatonin. I was like, oh, okay. I think maybe my perception, and I didn't experience any like feelings of grogginess or anything. I just felt really good the next day. So I was like, I wonder how much my perception of like melatonin making me feel like too drowsy or an issue, how much of that is psychological? Because when I took half a bottle, not realizing it, like it was fine. And then the third thing that sold me on it was interviewing Dr. Stephen Gundry for his newest book. So his book, Unlocking the Keto Code, he talks a lot about the mitochondria in the cell and everything that's happening with energy production. And even though John Laurence talked about it in his book, I don't think I really grasped the fact until I read Stephen Gundry's Unlocking the Keto Code that in our cells, like the two things that are really keeping those mitochondria going are, and serving as antioxidants are glutathione and melatonin. So then I was like, oh, so melatonin, it has a lot of benefits on a cellular level beyond just sleep. Now I do supplement with it more. I'm trying to find my like right dose, but I take at least one of my pills each night. I think it's a three milligram. So what sounds appropriate? It's funny. MD Logic makes a product and I was transitioning from Designs for Health. They have like a sustained release formulation And, you know, in my mind, I was like, okay, designs for health, dose, and I'll make the equivalent with this other product. And it's the first time I've taken too much melatonin, like three of the same, it was like the same dose, but MD Logic's product was stronger. And I woke up the next day and I was like, could barely get my eyes open. And so I was like, the thing you do if you've taken too much melatonin is you get sunlight exposure on your retinas that'll help suppress melatonin, increase cortisol. I'm oversimplifying, but... Yeah, I got out and took like a two-mile walk outside in the sun without sunglasses and then felt better. But I was like, whoa, that is not the same. It's much stronger. Which brings us back to the importance of vetting your brands. There actually is a study when I was researching, I think for this show, I was researching like when they test supplements, the actual what's included in the supplement. And there's a study on testing melatonin supplements. Oh my goodness. The range of what was in them compared to what they said is just so scary. (laughs) So you definitely want to make sure that you're taking brands that you trust. And it sounds like MD Logics at Melatonin probably actually has what it says it has. Yeah, no, no. It was like unbelievable. I was stunned. And I, I think after, you know, many years of prescribing medications and supplements and things like that, I'm pretty savvy, but that was a little humbling. I was like, oh, thank God. I'm glad I didn't have to be like talking on a stage that morning. I would have been like feeling like I was struggling a bit. I'm like, I got a little too much melatonin, but you know, you can work around that. If you would like to get their melatonin, we'll put a link to their website in the show notes, but the code Melanie Avalon will get you a discount code on their website. So, okay. Well, This was so fun. I'm excited because this was our first, like last week, you know, I sort of just interviewed you, but this was our first like normal episode (laughs) and I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. No, it's nice to have a forum to be able to discuss some of these things because it's hard on social media. Like I endeavor to try to, you know, respond. Like when that New England Journal of Medicine article came out, I did like a very brief IG live just so that it was available to be able to send out and share with people. But 
as I'm sure you're in the same boat, it's like, it's impossible to get to every question and answer every question. And so, you know, I look forward to seeing what the listeners want to learn more about. And obviously we didn't get to all the questions that we've been asked. So we'll get to those in future episodes. Exactly. Yeah. It's really nice to have, especially in like the creatine as well, like to have had a foundational conversation. So then in the future, when people are like, what about creatine? We can be like, we talked about it on the iPodcast podcast for listeners. If you go to ifpodcast.com, there is a search feature there. And because we have transcripts for all of the episodes, you'll usually find the episode where we talked about it, which is really nice. So definitely take advantage of those transcripts and the search function, which some resources for you guys. If you would like to submit your own questions for this show, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. You can get all of these stuff that we like at ifpodcast.com slash stuff we like. And you can follow us on Instagram. I will say, Cynthia, you're one of my like Instagram role models. <laughs> you like do it so well. You do all of those IG lives. I'm like, oh, <laughs> they drain me so much, the IG lives. You know what I've learned? Like shorter is better. Like not only does it get it more views because I used to get so many questions when I would do Ask Me Anything. I was like, oh, I'm going to do an IG Live and I'll answer all of them all at once. No, no. It turns into like an hour long discussion. And so I told my team, now I'm going to just be targeted. Like when I come on, I've got something to say. And my team did a Reels yesterday that kind of has gotten some interesting feedback. I may have to address that in an IG Live this week at some point. Oh, exciting for listeners. If you would like to see all of that content. Okay. Tell me your handle again. There are underscores in it, right? Yeah. So it's Cynthia underscore Thurlow underscore. And for anyone who's wondering, I used to have a business name. And so after the viral Ted talk, I got the bright idea that I was going to change all of my social media handles to the same thing. The unfortunate thing for me was that a lot of the handles that I wanted were already taken by other Cynthia Thurlow. So I was kind of left with it's kind of bizarre constellation of different usernames on different platforms. But yeah, Cynthia underscore Thurlow underscore. You'll see me there. And I am just Melanie Avalon. And I've actually been pretty surprised with social media that knock on wood, Melanie Avalon was pretty much always available everywhere. Even on like Venmo, like, (laughs) like like it's like a, a unique name that I guess nobody has. This is my married last name. And so there are a lot of Cynthia Thurlows and that's their maiden name. And so inevitably, at least once a month, I get a message asking if I'm someone that's from Maine. I'm like, no, this is my married name. I'm not that person. Nope. 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 So yes. Well, I think that is all the things. This has been absolutely wonderful and I will talk to you next week. Sounds great. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the intermittent fasting podcast. Please remember everything we discussed on this show does not constitute medical advice and no patient doctor relationship is formed. If you enjoyed the show, please consider writing a review on iTunes. We couldn't do this without our amazing team. Administration by Sharon Merriman. Editing by Podcast Doctors. Show notes and artwork by Brianna Joyner. Transcripts by Speech Docs. And original theme composed by Leland Cox and recomposed by Steve Saunders. See you next week.